court in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we reopen your Holy Scriptures, we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word as it is proclaimed, that you would open our hearts, even as you did the heart of Lydia, to take heed to those things spoken to her by Paul. Oh, Father, we pray that we too will take heed to the things spoken to us today by the truth of your word, and that we earnestly pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, for a greater clarity to what we will hear today as to the centrality of the person and the work of your eternal Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, as our one and our only hope and certainty of true salvation. May for your people here today, may this truth be to them a greater measure of assuring them of their faith in Christ and to those in our midst who are unbelieving. Father, we plead with you that this would be truly the day of their salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is in his name, by his mediation, and on account of his saving merits, we ask all these things. Amen and amen. Well, I do invite you to take the word of God and let's turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We're going to begin reading at verse 31 to verse 36, and next Sunday, next Lord's Day, in the light of what we're going to be seeing this morning, I am going to uh, do something in the tradition of the old English Puritans who improved the sermon. That's what they called it, improving the sermon. And so next Sunday... Because of the truth of what we're going to see this morning regarding how Jesus sets us free from sin, we're going to see how that really does apply to us as Christians. And so we'll be in Romans chapter 6 next Sunday as more layers are added to what we're going to see this morning from John chapter 8. But let's begin John chapter 8, verse 31. And reading to verse 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you will become free. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave 
does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, authoritative and sufficient word of the living, eternal God. There is perhaps no temporal blessing more prized and honored in the Western world than that of freedom. Whether it's freedom from a foreign power and religious freedoms which have been implanted, as it were, in our American DNA. How many people in history have sacrificed life and fortune to maintain and keep what these freedoms represent. But after all the efforts that have been carried out to acquire such liberties as these, yet there remains a slavery which all people cannot escape by their own power. No matter how many battles are won, defending our national and cultural liberties... No matter how many laws are passed to secure those freedoms, in spite of all of that, the greatest freedom we all need is a freedom that cannot come any other way but by the power of God in the person of His eternal Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. And it is to this very subject, which is the concentration of our study this morning in John chapter 8, Verses 33 through 36. This passage in John 8 finds us at the beginning of an exchange between Jesus and these Jews who have believed him apparently unto salvation. At least that's what it appears like on the surface. But our Lord is not quick to commit himself to just any professions of faith in him. Jesus, reading the hearts of all men and women, knows with perfect knowledge just how legitimate or illegitimate someone's faith really is. This is why in this present passage we see our Lord begin his response to these Jews by declaring what is the true manifestation of a true disciple who follows him. In verse 31, Jesus declares, as a matter of fact, that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. This means that an authentic follower of Jesus Christ, a true Christian, is someone whose life will continue and remain by way of trust and obedience in the word of Jesus Christ. Indeed, Jesus continues in verse 32 to say that the experience of his true disciples will be knowing the truth of his word and being set free by it. And you will know the truth, our Lord says, and the truth will set you free. The truth of his word, which is the truth of his gospel, will set us free from the burden, guilt, and dominion of sin as it points us not once but continually to Jesus our Lord by whose life, death, and resurrection is the saving power that has set us free forever from sin's fatal bondage. But to these Jews who heard these words from Jesus, these Jews who were claiming to believe in him, how do you suppose they responded to what Jesus asserted about his true followers? Well, as we turn to John chapter 8, verses 33 through 36, we will answer this question by considering first the protest 
the Jews make. And then second, we will consider the proclamation Jesus gives. To begin with then, let's look at the protest the Jews make. Reading verse 33. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Despite their claim to believe in Jesus, the immediate response of these Jews to what Jesus contends as to one of his true disciples fell far short of real saving faith. They did not affirm what Jesus said, but disputed him by claiming favor with God from an entirely different source. They fulminated in a rant. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. By objecting to any idea of slavery, we must not interpret this claim as a denial of Israel's long history of political enslavement to various foreign powers. To make that kind of a claim would be absurd in the extreme. There was scarcely a major power historically whom the Jews had not served, like Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria, and Rome. So what then did this claim actually refer to? By putting it in the context of their ancestral lineage to Abraham, the freedom they're advocating is spiritual, not political. Like all Jews of that time, they banked their standing with God and favor from him purely on the fact that they were physical descendants of Abraham. To say then that their only hope of spiritual freedom was by the truth of Jesus' word, to claim that contradicted and countered the religion upon which their entire faith was built. This is why their question, how is it that you say you will become free, that question has a very ugly and mocking tone to it. They could not be more offended by what Jesus has declared concerning his true disciples. In their pride and self-righteousness, they were convinced that their Jewish ethnicity rooted in their identification with Abraham placed them in a position of eternal peace with God. Therefore, whatever faith they were posturing for Jesus was clearly not saving faith. Since the focus of their real faith was not fixed in Jesus Christ alone. Perhaps they liked some things Jesus had taught. Maybe the authority by which he spoke impressed them. And certainly we can rightly assume that they were quite dazzled over his miracle working power. But when it came right down to where their hope and confidence rested for peace with God, it was in a natural family pedigree rather than God's eternal son. They were not looking for a Messiah to save them from their sins, but a Messiah who would save them from political oppression. 
as far as they were concerned, and we need to get this by their response to Jesus, as far as they were concerned, their spiritual condition was spiritually free from any enslavement to any power that would keep them from God. So to know the truth of Jesus' word, by which one would be spiritually set free, was a liberation these Jews could not fathom since they saw it as both unthinkable and thereby unnecessary. But like all sinners whose faith is built on a religion of their own making, they are blind to the truth of what they really need to be saved from. So in response to the boastful protest these Jews maintain for their spiritual freedom, let's turn now to see the proclamation Jesus gives. Reading verses 34 through 36, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In the face of what the Jews protested and advocated for their spiritual freedom, Jesus replies with a plain but devastating fact concerning not only these Jews, but all sinners without exception. Underlining the solemnity of his pronouncement with the words, Amen, Amen, truly, truly. Jesus then proceeds with the revelation of a slavery that is no respecter of persons. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The verb translated here as practices is constructed as a present participle. The present tense is referring to ongoing, unbroken action. But combined with the participle, and this is what's most interesting about this term as it's used here. Combined with the participle, Jesus is stating how the one who continues sinning does so out of a life principle which is inborn sinfulness. In other words... Jesus is not talking here about individual acts of sin, but rather he is speaking of a condition. A condition of a sinful nature whereby a sinner lives their life in the course of sin itself. This means then that we are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. It is the native air we breathe. It is our natural condition as fallen humanity. No one has to teach you to sin. You ever thought about that? No one has to teach you to sin. You will sin because it is your nature to sin. But Jesus goes further. In this statement, to make an identification concerning all of humanity and their sinfulness, 
Our Lord says everyone who, bra- who practices sin is, note this, is a slave to sin. A slave to sin. Here is man's ultimate bondage. It is not enslavement to a political or economic system. No, it is rather a vicious slavery to a pattern of life, a pattern of spiritual rebellion and moral failure standing opposed to God at every turn with every decision. We see the Apostle Paul unpacking this at great length in Romans chapter 3. In verses 9 through 18, if you recall in the context of Romans, the Apostle Paul begins in chapter 1 in verse 18 and takes us all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20 to expound to us man in sin under the wrath of God. That's the principal doctrine of that whole section of Romans. Man in sin under the wrath of God. That is what we would call the very bad news. The bad news of not just some people's circumstances and situation. No, that is the bad news of all of humanity. And so the crescendo of this teaching begins at verse 9 of Romans chapter 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Obviously the Jews Jesus was addressing thought they were better off, right, than the Gentiles. Are we better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, which is shorthand for the entire human race, both Jews and Greeks are what? Under sin. Under sin. That is under the power, under the dominion, under the enslavement of sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes who is that talking about oh I know it's the Democrats it's those progressive liberals it's the pro-abortionists that's who this is about well I hate to break it to you this is talking about all of us this is all of us this is humanity fallen by nature in sin. Again, this is why Paul says in verse 9, 
For we have already charged that all, that all, both Jews and Greeks, all the human race, all the human race, are under sin. Later here in chapter 3 of Romans, this is a verse that every good Baptist knows very well. In verse 23, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But look, look at, the, look at the, the, the words that just precede that in verse 22. For there is no distinction. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What Paul is saying there in summary is what we've just read earlier here in Romans 3, verses 9 through 18, in a much larger exposition. So going back to our text then, Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. When Jesus describes every sinner as a slave, a slave to sin, this term slave must not be minimized at all, not one bit. It is the Greek adjective doulos, which means enslaved or enthralled. It therefore depicts the sinner to be totally under the control of sin and thereby unable to free one's self from sin's cruel mastery. The sinner's life then is engrossed in sin and carried away by sin so that no matter what he thinks or says or does, his entire life is under the enslaving power of sin. And this spiritual and moral bondage, listen to me, it's true whether the sinner sees it or not. It's true whether they realize it or not. It's true whether they admit it or not. Some unbeliever says, well, I don't believe that. So, that makes no difference. It's still true. It's still true. This is who you are. This is who you are. A slave to sin. So then, while these Jews, while they believed that their religion and relationship to Abraham put them right with God, Jesus makes it clear that they were in fact opposed to God as slaves to sin. He revealed their real problem, their ultimate problem, which, which was not living under the hardship of a political despot in Caesar. That was not their real problem. No, it was living as slaves under the dominion of sin. This was the slavery, therefore, they needed to be truly freed from if they were to be right with God.
But moving further, our Lord goes on to give a stern warning to these Jews, still using the analogy of slavery. Reading verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Now, by the term house, the way it's used here, we must understand this is in reference to a family, like the house of Jacob, the house of Esau, the house of Judah, okay? It refers to a family. So Jesus is reminding these Jews of a fact they already knew, that a slave has only a temporary place in a family. The Jews caught that. They got that. But the spiritual application of this fact was quite devastating to these self-assured Jews. Since they insisted that they were Abraham's offspring and thereby belonged to the favored family, Jesus made clear that their natural lineage entitled them to nothing eternal in favor with God. The truth is, they were slaves to sin. And as such, they were therefore not true sons of Abraham by faith. Abraham's true sons, as Paul the Apostle tells us in Galatians 3.29, are only those who belong to Jesus Christ. Whether Jew or Greek. So while the Jews could claim to be Abraham's natural descendants, this family pedigree could not free them, it could not liberate them from their enslavement to sin. They may have mixed and mingled in the family circle of God's true children, that is, the remnant of ethnic Jews at that time who were true, genuine believers, So they may have mixed and mingled with God's true children, but listen, but they did so as slaves to sin, which meant they would not remain in God's house forever. And what this is inferring as way of illustration historically, which the Jews, these Jews, would would, would very quickly catch and understand is that this is no different than Abraham's natural son, Ishmael. Ishmael would eventually be removed from Abraham's house forever. Ishmael, who was the son of the bondwoman Hagar, the son of a slave. Whereas Isaac, Abraham's son of promise, God's chosen one would remain in Abraham's house with no fear of removal ever. Why was this? Because the slave does not remain in the house forever. Only the son remains. Only the son remains. And these Jews would have caught that they would have caught that 
as they were posturing with great, great arrogance, hey, we're the physical descendants of Abraham. We are right with God. Well, so was Ishmael. So was Ishmael. But he was not the child of promise. Ishmael eventually had to go. So what hope then do these Jews have to be a true part of God's family? What hope do they have to never have any fear that their place in God's house is only temporary and not eternal? Or to ask this in a different way, how can these Jews change their status and identification from slaves to sons? Jesus answers this question emphatically in verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What hope do these Jews have to be a real part of God's true eternal family? What possible security can they claim to be forever in God's house? Listen, it is all resting in God's eternal Son. Jesus Christ the Lord. This is because by the authority and power of Jesus Christ alone can sinners experience true liberation from their enslavement to sin. This is why Jesus makes this amazing proclamation. And it really is. It's amazing with such astonishing assurance that He alone... He alone will free the sinner from their slavery to sin. So if the Son sets you free, and by sets you free, that's an aorist tense, one point in time, never to be repeated again, a completed action. So if the Son sets you free, completely free, well, then you will be free indeed. There is no question, there is no doubt, there is no uncertainty as to what Jesus is promising. By his life and death and resurrection, he frees forever those sinners who trust in him alone for eternal salvation. This means that the price, the power, the penalty, and the punishment of sin is forever taken away from those sinners who lay hold of Jesus by faith. And not only, not only the price and power and penalty and punishment of sin is taken away, but when Christ returns or when his people enter glory via the portal of death, then what else goes away? The presence of sin. It is a total and complete freedom. A total and complete freedom. But please understand this, brothers and sisters. Apart from Jesus Christ, apart from God's eternal Son, there is no freedom from sin, but only slavery to it.
without Jesus Christ, you remain a slave. You remain a slave. This is why when Jesus refers to himself in this text as the son, Hahuihas, that is in the emphatic position. The emphatic position. So, only, only in Christ can you be freed from sin. Only in Christ. There is no other way. He is the only way. This is why, no matter what kind of religious upbringing you may have had, hey, even if it's biblical, even if it's biblical, or no matter what kind of religious experience you may claim, and no matter how sincere and real that may be to you, beloved, listen to this. If Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God made flesh, is not the only hope, the only confidence, the only assurance a sinner is trusting in for their eternal salvation, then they remain a slave to sin and will face in that slavery the eternal punishment it deserves by God's righteous judgment. Remember what Jesus says here. Do not forget this. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free. Indeed. You will be free. Indeed. So let's think about these amazing words in personal application. You have a problem. You do. You, you have a problem. It's your greatest problem. It is your greatest problem. It is not economic. It is not political. It is not educational. It is not environmental. It is spiritual. And it is moral. But it is a problem that proceeds from who you are by nature as a fallen, rebellious sinner. Furthermore, it is a problem that has enslaved you under sin's dominion and you don't have the power or the will to free yourself from this slavery. But adding to this, your enslavement to sin sets you at odds with God as his enemy who will punish you forever under his righteous judgment. So then, regardless of all the privileges you may have had growing up in a religious family, reading the Bible, going to church, yet none of these things, none of these things have fixed your problem by freeing you from sin because you have never set your hope and faith 
all of your hope and faith in Jesus Christ alone to liberate you from sin's curse and condemnation. Listen again to what Jesus says to every sinner in their slavery to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You understand, that's not a hypothetical. That's not a theory. That is a fact. That is truth. That is reality. So then here's my question. Are you looking to the Son? Are you looking to the Lord Jesus Christ as your freedom from sin? As your only liberator? Your only eternal hope of peace with God? I'll never tire, ever, even though I was harshly criticized over this many years ago in another church, in another state, or I should say in another world. When a man asked me, but he was being critical, very critical, why, why do you keep telling us that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? And I simply said, well, because he is the only way to God. But I went further and said, because there are many people in this congregation who've been in this congregation all their life, and they still don't get it. They still don't get the fact of what Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one, that is a universal negative, no one comes to the Father except through me. And it is shocking that you can be in a Protestant church all your life and not get that. Even if you're hearing it every week. Shocking. Let me close with these words from J.C. Ryle. These are, these are some of Ryle's comments on John 8.36. And this is a very good way to finish out this exposition. J.C. Ryle wrote this. He said, Let us not forget in these days that the only liberty which is truly valuable in God's sight is that which Christ gives. All political liberty however useful for many purposes, is worthless unless we are children of God and heirs of the kingdom by faith in Jesus. He only is perfectly free who is free from sin. All beside are slaves. He that would be free in this fashion has only to apply to Christ for freedom. It is the peculiar office and privilege of the Lord Jesus to enfranchise forever all who come to him. Have you come to Christ?
Are you trusting him alone? Are you looking to him alone as your true liberator? The only one in who, in whom we have any hope, because he's the only hope for eternal freedom from sin. Heavenly Father.